2: October the 19th, 1975, volunteer Alex. Two months ago, I visited for a checkup, exclamation mark, and when the doctor discovered that I was gay and, quotes, abnormal quotes, he reacted by getting very huffy and attempted to make me feel that I was an inconvenience, wasting his precious heterosexual time. Ha! When it actually came down to the point of analysing my bum, he got very, very uptight about me asking what lubrication he was using, as it really was very, very good lube and quite the best I'd ever encountered. That's astonishing. Well, I have to say, I am I'm mortified that some bastard was actually being unpleasant. That person should not have been working in the specialty. Now, I do, do know that there were a few people like that in those days. I very much doubt that there are any nowadays. We've, we've, we've got rid of the fuckers. Inconvenient,
0: that's the last thing you want to feel when you're trying to deal with maybe a sexual health problem. I had a bad experience once because I think that the doctor didn't really know enough about specialist care to a gay man and uh, that was not nice. So I, I can sympathize with being made to feel an inconvenience.
1: Yeah, I think that doctors and nurses have such a big responsibility and an impact on the patient that they're treating, whether you're LGBT or not. So to make someone feel judged by their sexuality in addition to that, and um, is really awful. You're listening to the logbooks Stories from Britain's LGBTQ+ History and Conversations about being Queer today.
0: In partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT+ Helpline. I'm Adam Smith.
1: I'm Tash Walker. Episode 8: I was an Inconvenience.
0: In this episode, we're going to be looking through all of the logbook entries from Switchboard, 74 to 82, to do with health. We're
1: going to hear from a doctor who treated thousands of gay men in the late 70s, people with memories of their own sexual health treatment, and also a trans and intersex woman who transitioned in the early 80s.
0: All of the logbook entries that we're looking at in this season stop at 82, just before the HIV epidemic. So hopefully if we do a season two, that's when we will cover HIV.
3: The information about sexual health and clinics was a very important part of the work. I'm Tony Whitehead. I am 65 years old. I never thought I'd reach 65. There were some clinics. We, we did get information about some places and some doctors that were just, frankly, nasty. They
2: shouldn't have been doing that job. There were some doctors, just one or two that I worked for, who did have a blatantly unsympathetic attitude. And the way they'd start a consultation is they wouldn't look at the patient. They would look down at the notes and say either words to the effect of, what have you been doing? Or, what's it this time then? Some disparaging remark, rather than the very simple, how can I help you? I'm Peter Greenhouse. I'm 64 years old now. I've been in the NHS for 40 years. I got recruited to do sexual health work as a medical student.
3: There's a great fear not knowing what things are like. I mean, I, I, I was a well-informed person, but I, I'm trying to remember the first time I had to go to a clinic for a check and goodness says it it's the first time I actually caught something... It was it, 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 it was it was it was it was difficult it was this mixture of fear and embarrassment and uh, uh, it was, was not a,
2: it was not a nice experience but um, but i got used to it over the years <laughs> back in the late 70s the principal infections that that uh, gay men had would be gonorrhea and syphilis i think when you would try to choose which sexual health clinic to go to it was a matter, largely a matter of potluck and probably just which ones your friends had been to and the, the sort of attitudes that they'd, they'd found. To be honest, there were probably very few clinicians working in sexual health clinics in those days who were manifestly unsympathetic. The problem is that you wouldn't have known that before you went to the clinic uh, and people would have been worried that, that they might have been judged in the way that well, the rest of bloody society was judging them at the time.
1: It's just so important that people know how to get the treatment that they need. And over the years, Switchboard has helped so many people do just that.
0: And that's because you can see in the logbook entries, Switchboard volunteers are sharing information with each other about treatments and about clinics and, and what's going on.
4: This is a logbook entry from October the 7th, 1975. Just having been cured of gonorrhea... The doctor at the clinic advised me that since cases of syphilis in the gay world are rising dramatically, all gay men should have checkups once every six months. The main reason for this is that cases without symptoms are also rising. All one needs is a blood test.
0: And there's actually a discussion about whether it should be three months or six months. I think now people say have a regular checkup every three months. But that's a an example of the volunteers and switchboard sharing information with each other in the pages of the logbook.
1: Yeah, and also using themselves as sort of test pilots for where's good to go. And there's another logbook entry. October 29th, 1975. Any switchboard volunteers who have visited a VD clinic recently, can you please write a critique of it for quotes after lunch? This is most important as we wish to institute a star rating of all London VD clinics, something equivalent to the Good Food Guide. Please place any contributions in my envelope.
0: So what does after lunch mean? I don't
1: know. (laughs) That's a good question.
0: Maybe it's like a review, as if you'd just eaten your lunch in a restaurant
2: and you want to say whether
0: that was a good restaurant
2: or not. So here's a leaflet that's actually pasted into the uh, logbook. October 8th, 1975, Volunteer Unknown. The leaflet here says, help for bisexuals and homosexuals. Contacts for five organisations, including Gay Switchboard. And there's a little note here. says, this leaflet is freely available at the Westminster Hospital VD Clinic. The consultant there, Dr Oates, paid for its printing. Westminster probably has the best VD Clinic, particularly for shy people. They even have pipe music in the waiting room, and Dr Oates and his colleagues are friendly and relaxed. I like the comment here about pipe music because pipe music is important for two two reasons actually. First of all, if you've got the pipe music in the waiting room then you can't hear what's going on through the the thin walls of the consultation room door or the you know or the walls. And so that's important. It's also just to make you feel a, a little bit more relaxed and to take your mind off stuff.
0: Wow, I never knew that about music in the waiting room.
1: I've been to the sexual health clinic and they're playing Vivaldi. <laughs>
0: I've been to a clinic where in the waiting room they have a radio on, I don't know, Magic FM. It's really, really staticky and really snowy, and maybe that's what they're up to. I just thought it was like a really bad radio with a bad signal, but maybe they're masking private conversations. Peter actually knew the doctor mentioned in that leaflet that was pasted into the Switchboard logbook, and he gave him one of the many important lessons he needed as a junior doctor.
2: There's no... uh... Social bar on getting sexually transmitted infections and, and I'm I'm actually very proud to see that uh, my my old boss is uh, Is mentioned here in the in the logbook Titus Oates, Dr. J.K. Oates who was the the boss in Cambridge and also in Westminster and He got in, interviewed in the 60s and they asked him now Dr. Oates You're the consultant in the venereology clinic that is closest to the Houses of Parliament, at Westminster Do you ever see people from that establishment in your clinic? And he thought about this for a few moments, and he said, "We get all sorts of people in here, all sorts." And I think that was probably the most diplomatic answer. But every person that I could meet and look after, be they a sex worker, be they a gay person, or just person who had been having lots of sex and got an infection, uh, where society's attitude would be unsympathetic, I wanted to be as as friendly as I possibly could be, and manage them as I would want myself or my best friend to be managed. And each time I did this, it was a kick in the balls for the bastards who were unsympathetic. And how do junior doctors learn? Well, they rely on their patients. Uh, I was put in with a patient by the senior consultant there. there. He said, Peter, just have a chat to this guy. And he was a merchant seaman, and he'd spent you know, his entire career in the merchant navy being well, being bottom, I guess, is probably the best way to, to look at it. And he was just so completely open and wonderfully humorous about his life. And I felt such tremendous sympathy for him. he just had another dose of gonorrhoea at that particular time, but I'm sure he had plenty before, and I think he'd had syphilis a couple of times before, but then who hadn't? And he told me in in the most graphic terms of what he was doing and in the also in the funniest way that you could possibly do it and we were we were almost in tears together laughing at a time also when I had very little understanding about what gay sex and gay life was all about and this was just such a wonderful introduction to the whole subject
4: this is a logbook entry from June the 2nd 1975 Paula rang to ask if we had a private venereologist or clap doctor on our files. I can see no trace. Do such things exist or is it one luxury the rich have to share with the rest of us? And there's a response from another volunteer that says, no, they do exist, but we don't know of any. I'll try to find out.
1: So most of the calls that Switchboard got during this time were about sexual health for men. Um, Former volunteer Femi explains why.
5: I think men and women were different in their approaches to sexual health. And I don't think that lesbians were as alive in the late 70s and the early 80s to the need for them to uh, take care of their sexual health. Often the caller would have to be reminded by the volunteer that, you know, if you're using sex toys, for example, you do need to take care about where you're putting them, <laughs> What you know, when you're washing them in between, because, yeah, there wasn't enough information around for lesbians around sexual health, not in the same way that it was for gay men, not in those days. In my consciousness raising group, we used to talk about it quite a lot, and one of my first volunteering experiences was in one of my local women's centres, and we used to run pregnancy testing, um, free pregnancy testing for women. Women's centres were focal points for women um, who were involved in the women's liberation movement. Lesbians had a dual role there because we were the ones who were least likely to need the contraception and all of this sort of stuff, but we were likely to be the ones who were delivering it and that was part of our commitment to women's movement.
0: For many people in the 70s, actually being gay or being a lesbian, they thought it was a medical matter and so many people went to their doctor, actually, to ask them what they should do about that.
6: I'm Neville. In London, one knew nobody. And so I, I got a bit upset about all this. And I went to my GP and I told him I was not as other men were. And after he picked himself off, up the, off the floor, he said, well, I don't deal with that kind of thing, but I'll send you with someone who does, literally. And that was the luckiest thing that could have happened to me. Because I ended up with a chap, Dr. Jack Hobson, at the Middlesex Hospital. He was the chief psychiatrist there. He was a chap who was sent in to sort out Christie, the mass murderer, after they caught him. But over a long session, he, he, well, at the end of it, he said there are three things. One, I can give you aversion therapy. It doesn't work and it's horrible. Two, I can give you drugs to knock off, knock off the sex urge. That's pretty horrible, too. Three, I suggest that you get out there, get to know people, and in the course of time, you'll settle down. And There's nothing wrong with that. That wasn't bad advice.
1: May 29th, 1976. A woman, Kerry, rang Switchboard last Monday evening while in great distress, 16 years old, had been to three counselling sessions with Rose, who advised her to accept herself as a lesbian, which Kerry decided she did not wish to do, then wanted a sex change and went to the Portman Clinic. She has now changed her mind again and wants to learn to accept herself as a lesbian. I suggested she get in touch with Rose again. That logbook entry shows the complicated nature of gender identity, sexuality and health, and how every single person is unique, We all have to face similar, related issues, but each in our own way.
0: So here's Diana's story about that and how her situation was handled in the early 80s.
7: I went straight into the civil service. I took the job because it was a job. It was an interesting work. I was really keen on doing it. But it helped me save up money because I thought as soon as I came out and said, this is what I want to do, that was me out the door but it turned out differently that the person my section head, who was actually a religious guy, uh, it was the opposite. He said, wow, okay, what can we do? Do you need time off? How can we help? We really want you to stay. We don't want to lose you. So, So I transitioned in the civil service, which was so incredibly lucky. I started my transition around 1980. I went through the transition within two years, which is really unusual. It was quick then, but now it's unheard of because you can wait two years to get an appointment. But my transition was was quick, partly to through being intersex as well, sort of, I think, fed into that, that they felt more comfortable to push me through at speed, maybe. After my transition, I could be who I was. I felt truly fantastic. It, I could be me who I am. So when I was going through my transition is really when I came to know that I was intersex. I had the inkling when I was at school going through puberty when my body changed in ways that others didn't. So I had an inkling of that but not a full understanding. Most people still do not have an understanding of intersex and many intersex people do not have an understanding of what intersex is. It's still something that we're going through and I'm learning. I'm not an expert on myself, let alone other people's intersex conditions. But for me, it, would, it made my transition easier because my parents had a choice when I was born and they made the wrong one. I am not blaming them for that they were given a choice by a doctor who explained things to them which had their prejudice and then your parents feel they have to make a decision, which is a wrong onus to put on them. And they unfortunately made the wrong one. They could easily have made the right one, but they didn't. So when I went to my psychologist at Charing Cross at that time, He could see on my medical notes that I was intersex. Even then, he didn't fully explain to me what that was. He just said what it was. And there was no internet for me to look up and find out what does that mean. Um, I could see it in myself physically and the discomfort that it gave me and sometimes pain that it gave me after the interventions when I was young. But I didn't fully understand it. The medical profession at that time didn't fully understand it. They thought they did, or they bluffed that they did, but they didn't. And that made my transition perhaps easier in that they could use that as an excuse for me to go fast within my transition Oh, that intersex, so we're just putting things right, rather than we're making a wholesale change. That is perhaps one of the reasons why my transition was so quick. But every in every single intersex person is different. We are not the same as each other. My experiences are possibly polar opposite to someone else's. There is some that the surgeons picked female when they should have been male. It's is a difficult thing. And it's still sometimes a a difficult thing for me to talk about because of the pain of the realization when I went through puberty and the abuse that I went through going through puberty. So I'm still in many ways juggling with that. And a lot of intersex people are doing the same. I try and be as open as I can about it. We've all got something that we have that gives us a something we've not fully 100% come to terms with yet and that's mine
1: being the first point of contact for so many people switchboard had to not only give out lots of information about sexual health but have so many internal debates as to what exactly that information and advice was
0: and exactly how to handle health scares when they come up among gay men and lesbians at this time there's a logbook entry from february 18th 1982 and it's actually part of a very long debate that volunteers are having in the logbooks and it says hepatitis I know a bit about it, I'm a carrier of the B virus, so was Simon who left Switchboard recently. I'm being researched by Charing Cross, he by Royal Free.
3: This is a logbook entry from February 1982. I've just had a call from a guy who is worried very much about the epidemic of hepatitis which has struck down six of his friends in the last ten days. He quite rightly is worried about the lack of publicity this spread of disease is getting. All of his friends have been to Subway's back room in the last two weeks and are convinced that they contracted the virus there. Do you think it would be a good idea to warn callers about the risk, which may be incurred by using the back room facilities in Subway, before they actually go there and then it's too late... Uh, signed Mark Ashton, he was a wonderful man.
0: The volunteers are having a, a debate about whether to say there is this disease, or you may get this disease if you have lots of sex or casual sex, so therefore um, you should be aware of that. Or on the other hand, there are people who just say don't have sex, or maybe you don't have sex in this particular way. And so some of the volunteers clearly think that that second one is like, too alarmist.
1: Like in point three of this very long pointed argument, it says, but if we are going to do alarmist things like telling callers not to go there because of the hepatitis risk, we'll have to tell all callers to refrain from sex other than with a permanent partner. These are risks, underlined, and then in brackets, though the state of knowledge about transmission of the virus is, I understand, fluid. There having been very rapid advances in knowledge recently, close brackets, but there are far greater risks of contracting other nasty things in such places.
0: There's a debate in the logbooks about what advice to give to callers about health scares and about particular places, um, particularly nightclubs, if there's been an association of a particular um, disease that's been contracted by p- patrons of a particular nightclub, um, and about whether to give advice which says, you know, don't go to that that particular nightclub, which some volunteers say is alarmist or to give more generic health information about how to be healthy and and stay safe and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, there's a really interesting argument in a subsequent entry, again, the 20th of February, 1982, where they're disagreeing, um, saying that what we're doing is not being alarmist um, to warn callers that casual sex uh, is places where you can contract certain, and in this case, hepatitis. Um, They then make subsequent Comparisons by saying I for one would not recommend a caller to a police-ically dangerous club or pub without a warning of police activity and an absolute fire trap which had suffered recent fires. I just think that's such a good argument to make.
0: That logbook entry is written in all caps which I think sort of goes to show the person's obviously trying to be really clear but also you can tell in the tone of the language and in all caps that there is this real fierce debate going on among volunteers about hand, how to handle these particular matters of sexual health. And it will be because they're concerned with sexual freedom. But on the other hand, they don't want people to get the wrong information and they don't want people to get sick. So that's a real like, fundamental tension that volunteers have.
1: One of the things I love about the logbooks is imagining a volunteer coming in to start their shift and the first thing that they do is look back over the logbooks and read the latest entries and then annotate and underline and criticise or compliment. And it's this wonderful evolution of what the logbooks became and so often, as we can see here, um, a reference point on, on how to advise people on sexual health.
0: So health is this huge topic in the logbooks in Switchboard from 1974 to 82. Everything from like sexual health testing to um, transitioning and issues to do with gender identity, and um, these are all like separate areas, but they're clearly such a, a huge part of being LGBT plus.
1: That's why we spoke to Dr. Tristan Barber at the Royal Free Hospital in London. Syphilis
4: and gonorrhea were a problem in the 70s, and they continue to be a problem that we see frequently in sexual health services. Incredible, isn't it, that 44 years later, we are still seeing the same problems. We're getting a little bit more information really around why that is the case. We are perhaps seeing an increased uh, importance of Gonorrhea that's carried in the throat, perhaps more oral sex that's happening and treatments to date may be not clearing gonorrhea so successfully in the throat compartment as opposed to the genital compartments. We also see rising syphilis rates. These are usually concentrated in men who have sex with men, but not exclusively. Antimicrobial resistance has obviously become a problem with some still relatively small outbreaks of drug-resistant gonorrhea, for instance, but fortunately we have not seen resistance uh, to treatment for syphilis infection. I think some of the noise around these sexually transmitted infections has been obscured for us in the last 20 to 30 years by AIDS and by HIV. Of course, Uh, those were more dramatic infections that we really had to focus our research time and attention on. And I think as we're gaining better control of HIV, seeing falling rates of diagnoses, particularly in men who have sex with men in in central London, uh, I think our new efforts in terms of testing frequency, in terms of early intervention, uh, in terms of prevention, are going to be around those other infections like gonorrhea and like syphilis. So I think Some of the oxygen, if you like, in the system was taken up by HIV. Not that people weren't researching syphilis and gonorrhea, but we had such an urgent need to respond to those infections that now we can start to turn some of our focus back towards our old enemies in terms of syphilis and gonorrhea. So I think it's really interesting thinking about how people look for and access sexual health services in modern times. I think people used to find out about sexual health services perhaps in adverts in magazines or free LGBT press Increasingly of course people use the internet. I think word of mouth is tremendously important so people that have had very good sexual health care at a particular clinic are often very happy to recommend that to their friends and to their sexual partners. Geography is very important. I think in the past in the very early days of our joined up sexual health service networks it used to be that uh, it was kind of a, a rising tide that raised all ships, if you like. So initially, people at high risk of sexually transmitted infections, high risk of bloodborne viruses, would seek out services and access those, particularly in metropolitan areas. But we've seen a more liberal attitude to sexuality and to sexual behaviour that I think is now, you know, more pervasive in areas of the country that perhaps were less well served by sexual health services historically. There are a number of gender identity clinics that are specific to perhaps the transitioning process or helping people and supporting them throughout their defining their own gender identity better. Of course, there are a number of other issues, including mental health, including uh, complex long term conditions, things like epilepsy, uh, asthma, diabetes that may affect transgender or gender different uh, identifying communities. And I think it's very important now that we start to think about holistic healthcare uh, and not just uh, sexual health care. Drugs have become used in a very different way. So I think drugs in the 70s and the 80s into the early 90s were very much around uh, dancing, very much around partying parties at people's homes and so on and in the last 10 years the pattern of drug use uh, has changed into the phenomenon we know as chemsex really focused around the use of three drugs in particular crystal methamphetamine ghb or gbl and uh, methadrone often with parties that go on for a long period of time and involve frequent sexual partner change and multiple uh, sexual partners of course some of this has gone hand in hand with the development of apps on our phones and websites where people can meet sexual partners more quickly. Uh, So those two factors have really combined into increased sexual health problems, I think, and some mental health problems, particularly in some very dense sexual networks of uh, gay men in particular.
1: Looking back over those eight years of logbook entries written by all of those different volunteers, there have been so many discussions around sexual health, including including the one about an outbreak of hepatitis linked to people having sex in the Subways Club backroom. They just didn't know what was coming. No one did.
2: Well, Heaven um, opened, I seem to remember, in the late 70s. And it was there one evening in, I think it must have been the winter of 81, 82, that I saw on a notice board, a reference to an outbreak of Carposa sarcoma among gays in San Francisco, and this is the first reference I ever had to AIDS, or what developed into AIDS. We'd like to
0: continue covering this story in a second season of The Logbooks, picking up where we've left off in 1982.
1: But that's the end for now, so we're closing The Logbooks. We hope to be back again with you soon. Calls to Switchboard are confidential, so to bring The Logbooks to life, we've changed the callers' names.
0: The Logbooks is produced by Shivani Dave, Adam Smith and Tash Walker, in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline.
1: If you think other people would like The Logbooks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help others to discover the show. You can send us your feedback and stories to hello at thelogbooks.org.
0: Our music is by Tom Foskett-Barnes, and our artwork is by Natalie Dotto.
1: Thanks to Steph Dickers and team at the Bishopsgate Institute,
0: the folks at ACAST,
1: Gareth Mitchell at Imperial College London,
0: the staff and volunteers at Switchboard,
1: and all the contributors who shared their stories. 45 years on, Switchboard continues to take phone calls from 10am to 10pm every day. If you're affected by any of the issues in this podcast or need to discuss anything to do with gender identity or sexuality, you can call Switchboard on 0300 330 0630, email chris at switchboard.lgbt or instant message via switchboard.lgbt where you can also donate money or time to help.